Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Zandi, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by my trusty co-host, Chris Dorides. Hi, Chris. Hi, Mark. Good to see you. It's good to see you as well. We're missing Marissa. What's up? She's still under the weather? She might be. Yeah, oh. She might be. So I thought she was going to join us today. Uh, well, maybe she'll join she us. Surprise at some point. us. She may yeah. surprise us. Yeah. Dip in here at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how are you feeling, by the way? I'm on the mend. I'm getting You're there. on the mend. Yeah. 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 You don't look any worse for the wear. That's uh, you know power of cameras and things here. <laughs> I got a special filter. So. It don't help me out, buddy. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well, it's good to have you back on up and running. And uh, we've got two guests, one internal, one from uh, outside our little world. I, hey, Mike, Mike uh, Brisson, how are you? Good, Mark. How's it going? I'm good. I'm good. I, you know, I, um, I am getting a little older. Uh, yes, I. Uh, you can tell it from my well, in many ways, but mainly from my hairline. But I went to the gym yesterday. I do go to the gym, you know, pretty regularly, and I'm sitting there in the gym. Observing this uh, one fella doing an exercise, I'm thinking, "Oh, that I should try that." Huge mistake. Oh no! <laughs> huge, huge error. That's why I'm kind of bent over here. Um, I've been taking Advil. Uh, wish me luck on that one. But uh, and and you know, at my age, injury is a problem, right? Because you know, once you get injured and you're out for a little bit, getting back is really you know not easy. So. Huge, yeah, you got to be mistake. careful. Anyway. You're the Kale Ripken of this podcast. You didn't miss one. <laughs> right. Uh, well, you asked how I was doing. I, I thought I'd actually tell you. How doing. <laughs> Is there a, a metaphor for the economy uh, there? Uh, what did you have in mind? Well, you know, you, you know, in expansion, you shouldn't try any new thing, new monetary policy, or try to reset inflation to a higher level or anything like that. Yeah, uh, stay uh, the course. Or... Stay the course, baby. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. And uh, uh, we have Jonathan Smoke. Jonathan, good to have you back on Inside Economics. Oh, I'm happy to be here with you. You're looking particularly dapper. Are you in your office there? I, I am in my office in Atlanta, and it's a brand new renovated digs. So, oh, nothing technical breaks today. I thought you guys were remote. No, did I miss that or something? Are you, well, we, are you well my my team has always been kind of hybrid because we've got folks around the country, but mm. um, no, we we've got a pretty large uh, campus in Atlanta, and increasingly more people are coming in. Oh, cool! And you're the chief economist of Cox Automotive. I should have uh, said that right up front. Uh, w- welcome, right. yeah, it's good to have you. And uh, we're talking autos, obviously. Uh, Mike's uh, our uh, uh, expert on uh, the auto industry. And Jonathan, you're the global expert on the auto industry. So it's good to have you both. We're going to talk a lot about autos. Uh, a lot going on there. Uh, but before we kind of get to that, maybe this past week, the big economic news was around inflation. We've got the consumer price index. I think that came out on Wednesday. And then the producer price index that came out on Friday. Uh, Chris, you want to give us a rundown? Uh, what the what the numbers say to you? Yeah, so uh, CPI, I would say, was a, a good report, right? But certainly better than consensus. Uh, CPI is coming, consumer price index inflation is is coming down. Some would say, perhaps according to script or, or right according to script, but uh, we saw some some improvement uh, pretty much. Who across would say the that, board. Chris? Who would say stick in the script? I, I don't know. Anybody you know? 
it seems so some seems so common. I don't know. <laughs> okay. All right. I hear it all the time. You hear it all the time. Yeah. Uh yeah. fair enough. Uh, um, sorry, sorry to interrupt. No, not at all. So we had Im improvement uh, pretty much across the board, right? Uh, so overall top line uh, CPI increased 0.1% in the month of March. That's 5% uh, year over year. So um, pretty hefty uh, decline, both in terms of month to month and uh, year over year, uh, especially as we're rounding the, the corner here in terms of the increased uh, prices that we experienced a year ago. As a, as a function of the Russia-Ukraine uh, war. So we saw a, a substantial uh, decline in energy prices, down 3.5% on the month, 6.4% on the year. So that's certainly uh, beneficial. Food prices, which had been uh, pretty sticky uh, in terms of an increase, were flat uh, this month. So that's, that is improvement, all right? So getting some relief there. And if you look at the subcomponents, uh, in certain categories, you actually see quite substantial relief, right? Eggs, for example, that's the big story. Uh, egg prices coming down uh, fairly quickly here. So that that certainly is a benefit uh, to consumers. The core CPI was uh, uh, also also came down a bit. It's 0.4% uh, on the month, 5.6% year over year. So um, still far from what, where the Fed wants it, but... Uh, Making some progress um, slowly, slowly towards towards the goal, but yeah, you know, that I think is at the crux of the debate: is the progress fast enough uh, for the um, for the Fed at this point, or do they, will they continue their uh, rate hikes as as a result of a still fairly elevated level uh, for the core CPI, excluding food and energy? I think uh, well, I'll highlight one part of it, and then maybe mm -hmm. turn it back to you. Okay. Housing. Uh, right, we, uh, is uh, of course a very important component here, and there we are seeing some signs of the uh, rent growth moderating as we expected. So pretty significant um, moderation, right? So not actually turning negative, of course, but uh, the month-month increase um, much smaller now uh, than it has been in, in pre or previous months. So do expect to continue to see some of the market rent um, declines or at least deceleration that we've seen continue to filter into the CPI. So that should continue to uh, put some downward pressure uh, on the CPI going forward. So I, I thought that was beneficial, right? Obviously we can talk about the speed, it would be great to see that come down even faster, but uh, given what we know about the markets, I would say that that was right in line uh, with expectations. Yeah, I, uh, uh, you know, obviously inflation is critical to the outlook the economic outlook you know if inflation remains high persistently high then the fed's got to raise rates more and ultimately we're going into recession uh some argue that and i think it might be you chris that there's we're already going into recession given what's happened so far but you know uh getting the, getting inflation down here in a reasonably graceful way is really really important and in my mind this was a reasonably graceful cpi report it felt pretty good to me i mean i'm growing increasingly confident that inflation is going to head back to the fed's target over the next year or so um, uh, in, it'll take about that long to get back to the fed's target but we're headed in that direction and kind of the frame i have is that there's three phases to this slowing in inflation growth you mentioned one explicitly that's housing and that 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 feels like that's baked right? Because we know market rents are flat to down. 
we know that that takes some time for that to translate through uh, into the cost of housing services as measured by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the keeper of the CPI data. And it feels like over the next six, maybe nine months, we're going to get increasingly, uh, it's not going to be a straight line month to month, obviously, but generally over the next six to nine months, we're going to see a, a, a steady deceleration in the cost of housing services. And that's a big chunk of the CPI. I think it's over a third of the CPI, I think well over 40% of the core CPI, excluding food and energy. And that that feels baked. I mean, that that's going to happen with high degree of confidence. Second phase is uh, uh, related to the cost of services. And we'll come back to that later uh, in the later in the discussion. But even there, that feels like we're moving in the right direction. If you look at like the core services, X housing and energy, you know, the uh, healthcare, hospitality, personal services, still strong inflation, but that feels like that's coming in as well. And then the third phase, and this is the phase that, you know, we're in the middle of right now is uh, related to goods prices and getting, uh, getting uh, on the other side of the supply chain issues of the pandemic, the labor market issues from the pandemic, the Russian invasion impacts on energy and, and commodities more broadly. And the one area where we are still waiting to see some improvement, I, but I, and I, you know, I'm expecting it soon, but here we're going to go turn to the, the auto guys and get their sense of it is weaker new vehicle prices. Used vehicle prices have come in, Somewhat, although they've shown some strength in recent months, we, could, we should talk about that as well. But new vehicle prices they keep going up. Uh, the you know big, pretty big increases in new vehicle prices, and we've been waiting for quite some time for that to roll over. And that's also really important to this you know outlook for uh, the sanguine outlook for inflation going forward. Before I turn to the to Jonathan and Mike to start uh, digging deeper into the vehicle price. Part of all the story. Does that frame sound about right to you, Chris? And sort of, you know, my thinking around uh, how that's playing out. It does. It does. I think the debate is really just about the the speed and can you land the plane or do you blow through uh, the bottom? As the trend is downward, but man, what does that? How does that trend play out over time? Is is really the the debate? I don't think there's any question about the phases you laid out there. Yeah, and even on the trends, I mean, we were at nine percent. CPI, consumer price inflation, year over year at the peak back in June of last year. As of March, with this data point we got this week, we're at 5% on the nose. And the target is 2.5% on the CPI, I think. Uh, the Fed has a 2% target on the ex core consumer expenditure deflator, but because of measurement issues, CPI is probably about a half a point higher per annum. So about 25 So I think that's our bogey. We went from nine to five, and now we got to go from five to two and a half. I and mean, it, it, clearly, nine to five is a lot easier because of the, you know a lot of that's energy effects and food effects than going from five to two and a half. But it feels like we're moving in that direction pretty quickly here. No, any argument there? Yeah. No. I, yeah. I think we'll sense. get there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, the question okay. is, can we blow through it? Yeah. Okay. With the recessions. Yeah. And you're still you still think at this point. Well, we'll come back to that, but you're yeah. still your instinct is still we're going to need a recession to get it back in in a fast enough way to satisfy the federal reserve board that we need a recession i don't know but uh, <laughs> that uh, we will have a recession. we will we'll have a recession okay but, uh, the probability of a recession is high let me put it that way yeah edge a little okay. bit okay well, let's turn back to the vehicle prices and you know 
maybe uh, Michael turn to you first. You want to characterize, you know, what's going on with new and used vehicle prices? It feels really weird, you know, what's going on there, at least to my eye. Yeah. So the the new vehicle prices. Let's start there. The the okay. new vehicle prices, according to BLS, they've been rising dramatically over the past year, year and a half. Um, so we got another positive number this month. And the way I characterize it, it's a story about MSRPs and the auto manufacturers can only reprice their vehicles when the new MSRP comes out. So there's there's an upper bound there on where uh, each yearly increase can go. Whereas used vehicles, it's a dynamic system, so you can go above and beyond that MSRP. Whereas the manufacturers are trying to keep their dealerships just at that top upper bound. And so uh, there was a, a number of dealers that were selling above that, but generally let's just say there's this upper bound of MSRP. And so as they just price increases, they happen every year, there's going to be a lag effect. Just, just, just uh, MSRP, manufactured suggested retail price. Just Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah, probably everyone in the world knows that, but just to make sure that everyone knows that, yeah. Or at least simply, in the U.S. Or simply the sticker. Or simply the sticker price, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> everyone knows that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, sorry, always, Mike. Yeah, you always want to get below the sticker. Now, now you just want to get at the sticker if you can. <laughs> Give me the sticker, please. <laughs> yes. Uh, so you have this lagged effect where the new vehicles being sold, let's say in September, October, where the new 2023 model years come out, there's a big jump in the MSRP from 2022 to 2023. So on the new vehicle sales side, you're going to have the 2023 model years being sold from October through the spring. And if we're not having any incentives come in and you're just at that upper bound of the, the new uh, 2023 model year, you're going to have year over year increases for the those new vehicles. So I think this lagged effect from the MSRP being an upper bound is the reason we're continuing to see uh, increases in new vehicle sales. It's my expectation like yours that these new vehicle prices will come down as uh, we go throughout this year. So I, I've been saying the second quarter of 2023 is going to be when we first start seeing uh new vehicle prices coming down uh, as incentives start to increase. And we are seeing incentives increase uh, little by little for new vehicles. And so then we'll see those transaction prices come down throughout the rest of this year. When, when do you think that happens, Mike? I mean, March later, it didn't happen. Late, Okay, later. later. I, I called in October to you that we'd start seeing in second yeah. quarter of 2023. So I'm sticking with it. Oh, oh, you did. Oh, back yep. back late, late in October of last year, you were saying when? October, I said uh, Q2 2023 was when we'd see negative okay. new vehicle price on BLS. From Bureau of Labor Statistics. Okay, Jonathan, does that does that kind of uh, description of what's going on resonate with you? And, and do you have uh, yes, a similar yes, perspective? Yes, it does. I mean, it, there's all kinds of interesting dynamics related to the sticker or the MSRP because it, it fundamentally um, makes, I would argue, the new vehicle market very inefficient in pricing when you have big swings in demand. Uh, and supply and far more dynamic is the used market and of that the wholesale market is like the closest thing you get to uh, a stock market uh, kind of real live um, you know bidding that determines real fluctuations in prices. Um, I would add in addition uh, to the, the discussion about the sticker uh, that we've actually been seeing it in the data that we track from Kelly Blue Book and it's a part of the vehicle affordability index that we we do together, that transaction prices have been down every month so far this year. 
mainly driven by uh, changing mix of vehicles that increasingly there are more uh, lower price vehicles. Uh, over the last uh, 18 months uh, prior, basically manufacturers had prioritized their most expensive vehicles and within the vehicles they made the most expensive trims and configurations. So that caused the inflation over the last year in particular to be more significant uh, than it otherwise would because the mix um, you know, was richer. Well, the BLS controls mix to a degree because they have a fixed basket of vehicles. And um, whereas ours is moving with whatever the average price looks like, so it's impacted by mix. And I, I think part of the reason they had prices still going up in March uh, when we're observing that real prices are actually coming down uh, was was because of that mix. And I, I too agree that you're, it's inevitable you're going to see uh, those prices starting to come in uh, in future months on the CPI. Okay, so you're you're saying that the uh, the BLS controls for mix, and and your the data you you look at does not the transaction prices that you look at do not. That's they're, right. They're, but but from a trying to measure inflation you do want to control for mix right so the bls number is more more what you want to sit to, to measure or is that an epistemological comment? yeah i think it's i think it's a, a wonderful philosophical debate that we can uh, have um, okay. because you have this issue that is the back basket they're using even reflecting what's available in the marketplace i think they under measured oh. the actual inflation that occurred last year for example uh, that real consumers were experiencing. Oh, interesting. Okay. And can I, and this may be way down into the DNA of the data, but when you say fixed weights, do you know fixed to what? You know, what, like 2019 or 2022 or? So mixed? they have a basket that fundamentally was first defined, as I understand it, in 2002. And then they do modest changes every year in September. That's why there's often a, a, a an apparent break in pricing because they're addressing when they might need to replace a specific make and model of a vehicle because it's no longer available and that that sort of thing in the, in the data. Um, so it's slow moving and they don't reveal the exact details of the basket. So uh, it's impossible for us to really measure uh, just how closely does it relate to the market? But if you think about it, 20 years ago, sedans ruled the world, and sedans are a minority of the vehicles sold today. SUVs uh, and pickup trucks combined rule rule the world. So there's been a tremendous change uh, in in what consumers actually buy, and by the way, what is available to sell, which is a huge part of the affordability challenge uh, for new vehicles in particular. It's funny. Uh Anytime you dig deep into any kind of data, it, it maybe this applies to everything that you dig deep into. You go, oh boy, this is not as clear cut as I thought. This is a mess. Uh, yes. This is a mess. Uh, so you have to exist on two planes. Uh, you know, I was actually a, a double major in economics and religion. And oh my uh, gosh, that is that is cool. 
there's an yeah. element of, of yeah. uh, kind of both that sometimes you can't allow yourself to doubt the fundamental truths that you believe in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, even though right. the evidence may be pointing to the contrary. Or the data. Maybe it, evidence is too strong a word. The, the data right. is pointing in a different direction. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That, oh, that's interesting. I thought you guys, though, were going to maybe you have to peel the onion back another layer to get here. I thought you guys were going to talk about global supply of new vehicles uh, and that you know production in japan of new vehicles production in germany of new vehicles and these are obvious those two countries are obviously critical to global production levels are still well below pre-pandemic and they're having a hard time getting that production up therefore you have just fewer new vehicles out there and of course here in the u.s we buy a lot of those japanese german vehicles so if there's not enough of them that means higher prices and that's fundamentally is what at the is at the root of the higher new vehicle prices and why the the dealers can get the the msrp why they can get the sticker price because yeah. because of that fundamental dynamic am i wrong we, no we are we are still supply constrained the current new vehicle inventory is is less than half of what it was in 2019 but we've come a long way from the tightest supply conditions which were a year ago we're we're up 70% um, compared to a year ago. So to frame that at the lowest point and for many months, almost 12 months in a row, we only had about 1.1 million units of inventory sitting on dealer lots or in, in uh, process of, of arriving uh, at dealer locations to be sold. Uh, and we're up to 1.8 million now. And But back in 2019, in the older days, it was usually over 3 million at any given time uh, you know, sitting on dealer lots. So it's still supply constrained. As Mike was describing, that produced the condition that uh, with the MSRP being a, a governor that we had 20 straight months until March, that the average transaction price was actually above the average sticker uh, because dealers had, um, you know, m- more pricing power uh, given the really tight conditions. But one by one, segment by segment, manufacturer by manufacturer, that has started to shift with the improving inventory. But when you dive into the data, yes, there's huge variation. We see Asia and especially Japan furthest behind in terms of being able to catch up. So good luck if you're trying to buy a Toyota, Subaru, Mazda uh, vehicle. Those are going to be the hardest to find and closest to sticker or above sticker. The other end of the spectrum, North America is closest to being fully back. And, and and if it weren't for labor, would be completely back. But labor is another dynamic because we've got UAW contracts and potential strike uh, coming up uh, in, in September. Um, so the, that creates behaviors that uh, are not typical historically. Like you would see, I think, more incentives with manufacturers that are further along in recovery and getting closer to normal uh, in supply, but they're still being fairly uh, uh, disciplined uh, to uh, keep uh, keep um, you know pricing high, and uh, so far that's that's influencing not seeing bigger declines in the in the prices we're observing. Hey, oh. Mike. Oh, go ahead. Let guys. me jump in here. Take yeah. labor's yeah. side yeah. of the argument. My dad was a, a union steward in the electricians' union, so I'll take labor's side on this one. Uh, so it is. Is it management or is it labor's side? So management's uh, throttling production on the U.S. side of things because of the contract negotiations coming up. Uh, are they purposely limiting the number of vehicles being produced? We're seeing uh, the lowest level of U.S. production now in February since 
uh, mid-2022. So we're not rising in production. We're decreasing in production in North America over the past few months. And is it because of the upcoming uh, negotiations this summer that maybe uh, we we don't need that many employees? Uh, We can negotiate the two-tier wage scales. So it, it might be a negotiating ploy as long, and they're able to make sure they don't have oversupply for any possible economic downturn. And at the same time, they want to make sure that they're maintaining pricing power and uh, those profit margins that they've become accustomed to over the past couple of years. Okay. So just to make this clear, uh, Japanese production is w- way down below pre-pandemic. Uh, no, no question. Supply yep. chain issues probably. German production is well below pre-pandemic. Probably, they're doing better. They're doing better. Okay, but still, they're not. They're still not there yet. They still haven't gotten production back. Here in North America, U.S., we got production back up to pre-pandemic, but now in recent months, it started to slide a bit. And you're saying, not quite clear what's going on, but it could be that the the manufacturers are actually restraining production one because there may be fearful of demand because of a, a recession or uh, and or they are focused on these contract negotiations that are coming up and if they cut production and jobs they might have some negotiating power you know with the unions as this contracting process unfolds that's what you're saying Yes. And I, you know, put another way, if you know you've got this very contentious uh, negotiation period coming up, uh, then because historically that has been the case and often led to complete shutdowns and disruption of of production, then uh, why would you aggressively push now when you're worried about what the economy and demand uh, might look like in, in a few months? Why would you aggressively go to three shifts in every factory when you're the key impediment is actually having the labor numbers uh, to to be able to do that? Um, so better to stay at this pace of sub 15 million until you get through that uncertainty. Uh, OK, sub 15 million, meaning sales. sales. 15, yeah. Production in North America is more like 10 or something. Right. I mean, OK. Uh, OK. OK. Interesting. Uh so going, Mike, to the forecast that new vehicle prices are going to roll over here, you know, in this quarter, you know, second quarter is now, we're in April, uh, that you're making some, I guess, assumption around uh, the negotiations with the UAW and getting to the other side of that in a reasonably graceful way. Is that what you're assuming? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. Because if that doesn't go well and production is shut down for any length of time, prices that'll are happen. That'll happen in September when the... Uh, contracts are up. Oh, okay. So this is this is a this is not a Q two event. This is more a Q yeah, in Q three event. Okay. And a Q three, Q four will be the impact. Yes. Okay. 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 Very good. Um. So so we should see new vehicle prices come in now. Uh, just to kind of uh, round things out in terms of pricing, used vehicle prices, at least the transaction prices that you that we measure, they're they're they've been rising in recent months. Uh, first question: What's going on there? Second question: If I if I look at the BLS Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, consumer price index for used vehicle prices, that keeps declining. So, what's going on there? Again, going back to the theme here, this is pretty weird. Uh, what's going on here in the auto market? Uh, Mike, do you want to take a crack at that? Sure. So, 
there's there's a couple of things going on. The first get to the BLS versus our wholesale indexes. So we have the Moody's Analytics uh, index, and there's the Mannheim, which Jonathan and Cox produce. And so our wholesale indexes differ from the BLS methodology. Hey, can I ask who, who's who's is better? I'm just curious. Uh, I of course would say Moody's, but Jonathan has his own. <laughs> <laughs> we we've got 25 years of of loyal followers. That says it all. We right did, we weren't asked who's is used more. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry I, I didn't mean to interject. Yeah, I did mean to, yeah, but go ahead. Yeah. So the first thing is the, the wholesale versus retail. And the uh, the numbers that the BLS is looking at, they're more of a retail with some uh, discounting for utility in, basket, in the basket. So uh, they're looking at kind of different things first. So there's the retail prices and the wholesale prices. And whereas the, the, our wholesale indexes have seen a jump up in prices. Uh, part of that, uh, the majority of the jump came in January and February uh, from the Moody's index. And a lot of that was uh, pushed forward seasonality. So we had the better weather earlier in the year. Uh, we've had strong consumer demand with the, uh, the 1.6 trillion in excess savings. So that, that's pushing up consumer demand early in the year. We saw it in retail sales in January. So there's a demand side of things. Um, you also had the slowdown in production in the U.S. that we had just talked about. Uh, these are the drivers that are kind of pushing up those wholesale prices as dealerships see uh, the, the lack of production coming down the pike. Uh, I do think it's an anomaly, though. Uh, going forward, we are still projecting uh, weakness in prices throughout this year and next year. Jonathan, do you have a, a different take on what's going on? Yeah, um, I would just add to to the discussion that we are very supply constrained. The used market, um, you know, is a product of what was sold new, uh, in, in especially in recent years. And so, the big decline in in global production and new vehicle sales for three plus years now uh, means that the used car market is smaller. Uh, or take a step back if you look at the size of the car park, the number of vehicles that are just out there, own title and and theoretically and available that somebody could sell them. Uh, it effectively has not changed in almost four years, um, when normally we would have seen growth of about a net addition of 4 million vehicles per year. Mm. So you've shrunk the possible pool of what's available to sell. And that's especially true in what fuels the wholesale market and the used retail market, like sales that were leases uh, or sales into fleets, like with rental car companies and uh, commercial companies. That's when, that's where uh, the industry has really uh, starved uh, th those outlets. Um, and so as a result, we're very uh, constrained on both the wholesale and the retail side. So we started the year, January had the least amount of used uh, inventory in at least 10 years. Um, and our supply data uh, on a, a daily and weekly basis only goes back that far, but I'm fairly confident especially adjusted for uh, population or something like that, it, it was probably the tightest January ever mm. Uh, mm. for used vehicles being available. So any modest uptick in sales, like caused by a, a better January weather-wise, uh, was immediately causing dealers to have to restock their inventory, uh, forcing them to go to auction. And then we saw what was a run of 11 straight weeks of wholesale prices actually going up rather than declining. And uh, then there's a disconnect because wholesale prices lead retail. We, we observe, especially over the last couple of years, about a two-month lag between wholesale and retail. So by the time we got to March, 
we started seeing retail prices going up. And uh, wholesale in the second half of March was actually losing momentum pretty rapidly. Uh, and I think April could very likely be down uh, in wholesale. But retail, because it's lagged behind those big moves in January and February, is still is still moving higher and is likely to 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 be even higher in April. Okay, so uh, would you agree with Mike though that you know if you look into the latter part of the so second later this year that with this improvement in new vehicle supply that we're anticipating that should also take some pressure off the used market and also yes. the economy feels like it might be and demand might be a bit softer. So There's the no combination question. would be yeah okay. We're already seeing it, and credit, which we're going to get into, uh, is also influencing. So that um, yeah, you know, there is definitely declining momentum in used, um, but you know, improving momentum in new. Uh, so no question that put that's going to put pressure. Our assumption is the the peak of prices is over for this year, and we're more likely to see downward pressure on on the used side. Okay, so you're both you guys are in agreement that both new vehicle prices and used vehicle prices likely are going to be headed south here for the remainder of the year, certainly in the second half of this year. Is that Does that sound right to you? That is right. Okay. However, what, what remember we're supply constrained. So the yeah. likelihood of a major decline is very low. limited. Yeah. It's just, it's very similar to the housing market, Mark. It's yeah. They same d- dynamic. Yeah. yeah. And you were chief economist of a, what, where you were also, you're a house real, too. Realtor.com. Realtor.com. Oh yeah. So you, you know what, of, of what you speak on, on the housing side. Yeah, absolutely. Mike always does this to me. He's got one caveat. Okay. Is it a big caveat, Mike? Uh, just a little caveat. Okay, so we, <laughs> we, we might see some uptick in those uh, BLS numbers, though. So we're talking wholesale uh, numbers. Yeah. Jonathan and I just right. make the distinction. So BLS is looking at those retail numbers. So we're going to see, likely see another uptick in the second quarter for used vehicle sales in comparison where where they are now month over month. Prices. Yep. prices. Used vehicle prices. Yeah. Yep. Right. Okay. So in, in Q2, new vehicle prices, that feels like that might be already, already heading south, but new... According to the BLS, we might see an uptick because of this lag between retail, wholesale, and retail. But by the second half of the year, we should see both new and used vehicle prices kind of moving south, not in a big way because of this underlying supply dynamic. And you're right, the housing market has the same dynamic. But in a in a uh, but still, when you take it back to the inflation story, it's a positive dynamic here going to play out over the next uh, yeah six nine months or something. Okay. Okay, for me, that's what I'm really focused on. Because again, that we're going back to inflation, we're going back to monetary policy, interest rates, and ultimately what it means for the economy and recession. And that that does feel well, feel good. Okay, um, let's talk a little bit about vehicle demand, uh, and um, and then we're going to play the game, the statistics game, and then we'll come back and talk about some other uh, things that are going on in the auto industry. There's a lot of stuff going on in the auto industry. These you know EPA standards around uh, you know uh, tailpipe emissions of very interesting EVs. Just want to get your you know take on that. Well, I wanted to also talk about auto credit and you know what's going on in the auto credit market. You brought that up, and maybe we'll do that now in the context of demand, uh, and then we'll uh, at the, uh, wrap it up with a broader discussion about the economy and prospects, like we typically do. With that on demand, let me just frame it this way: I've been wrong. Uh, so 
What? I've been way, yes, I've been way too optimistic. I, I, I this is self preservation because if I didn't say that, Mike would have been, you know, he <laughs> he'd be all over me if I didn't say that. I, you know, I took the sword before he, you know, because he put it right right through my liver, you know, if I didn't if I didn't say it. So I've been wrong. I've been wrong. I admit it. I expected demand to come back more strongly than it has. Uh, it hasn't. Uh, I mean, just I, give me, you know the numbers a bit better than me, but. I think uh, new vehicle sales are probably running somewhere between 14 and 14 half million units annualized. Before the pandemic, it was a rock solid 17 million units uh, annualized. So that I, you know, my thinking, my thought was that's kind of underlying demand, and we'll get there as the economy improves. But we haven't, in part because of the supply issues and pricing and lots of other factors. But I am still expecting a slow, steady improvement in new vehicle sales here. And that's key to going back to the economy and growth and avoiding recession, because there is some what I would call pent up demand for vehicles out there that have built up. Not not as much as I thought, because to Mike's Mike, Mike made this point early on and I, I didn't uh, digest it fully appropriately enough. We just drove so much so 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 much less during the pandemic that we just don't we just didn't need as many new vehicles because our, our new vehicles our, our cars weren't being used as much during the pandemic but i do expect us to kind of steadily ramp back up to 17 million units plus by mid-decade that okay that's the frame that's kind of you know the baseline forecast let me turn to you jonathan what do you think of that so i i probably uh i'm on mike's side uh okay. in the discussion uh, and there's a lot of banter about uh, pent up. See that he he took a knife. He he, he decided not he to go for the liver. Not to yeah. go for the liver though. He didn't go for the liver. He's waiting for Mike to do that. He kind well, of went, you know, yeah. went a little to the right of the liver. Okay, go I, ahead. I'm privileged to have uh, you know views of supply and and details uh, that that says yes, but um, to to the equation. There's still lingering supply issues that mean that. You know, at best, we're probably looking at 15 this year, and there's a there's more of a gradual build. I would agree that we could get back to 17, but in our view, that's probably more of a five-year ramp. But I would argue on the demand side, the most crucial uh, part is affordability. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I think, in theory, we could be selling 16.5 million or more this year if we had 2019 prices, interest rates, and incentives. Mm-hmm. And none of that is true. Uh, some something has to give. Now, as the industry comes back and we get inevitably to an oversupply situation, because it's a high fixed capital, fixed cost business that is prone to an oversupply situation, given the number of players with disparate um, kind of strategic objectives uh, in mind. There's always one or two players who's going after market share gains, uh, things that are irrational from a, a end profit motive for the overall industry. So it's inevitable we get to some level that uh, is persistently over, oversupplied and, and more cyclically driven. But in the near term, uh, we're dealing with the most expensive vehicles, tighter credit, much higher interest rates, um, and all of those things factor into what's possible. And we've got an enormous percentage of the population that just can't afford an, certainly a new vehicle, but increasingly even a used vehicle. So, so we uh, sales are limited by supply, but you're saying uh, the binding constraint here in terms of sales may actually be demand. 
Is yes. that right? In the near, in the near we, term. In once the near we term. solve the supply situation, uh, we're, we've yet to see that evident in the supply data. We're not seeing a buildup suddenly of new vehicle inventory waiting to be sold. Um, but I think we're close to that inflection point um, if we continue to see production recover. Okay. Mike, does that resonate with you too? That kind of thinking? Affordability is a major concern. And the getting into the credit side, do the banks really even want to give out the credit mm. if people do want a loan at these type of rates? And rates are at uh, multi-year highs. So do you want to go get an 8% loan on a, a vehicle when you're used to getting 0% interest rate with incentives in the last vehicle you bought four years ago? Uh, so I, I do think that there is some demand concerns and there are significant demand concerns going forward as I expect the economy to slow. And we're all expecting the economy to slow here over the mm -hmm. next year or so. Um, so I, I did want to pull out the knife a little bit, though, and talk about those new vehicle sales numbers. I remember back in uh, episode 11 of this podcast, you'd bet me that no, uh, <laughs> new vehicle sales would be averaging 17 million over the next five years. I did the quick math on that. I think we have to average 18 and a half million vehicles over the next two and a half years from that point. So that, that, I don't know that, if you want to pay up now or that, do we that, want to... Uh... No, 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 no way. No, <laughs> no, no. I take this down to the bitter end. Chris knows that. Uh, I'm I'm still waiting for our housing starts. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, I, I think I owe a buck. What's that going to happen? I, you know, I, I got to stop making these dollar bets. I always <laughs> lose these dollar bets. Uh, uh, okay, but we're just to just to get you on the record, we're we're say, am I right? We're at fourteen, fourteen and a half million annual. Right. No, right now, well, we have fourteen point eight last month. It's fifteen point two. I think yeah. we average. Oh, so you think we're quarter. higher than that? You're, you think we're closer to fifteen million? Years. Yeah, I, and we're forecasting fifteen point three for the year. Yeah, I think okay. that's about right. About right. Think, yeah. Okay, Jonathan, you feel comfortable with that too? The like the fifteen in the fifteen million range. We're we're under fifteen, uh, fourteen six to fourteen nine, but um, it's because we're expecting a much rougher third and fourth quarter. Um, so the pace kind of falls off for the economy broadly. You're saying because, by the way, we've never had a situation in, in U.S. new vehicle market when a recession did not result in production declining. Um, manufacturers would rather sell 14 million as profitably as they did last year than sell 17 million with excess incentives that essentially yeah. mean they don't make profit on those units. Right, that makes sense. And then, then next year, we're, we're where are we, Mike? I can't remember. Are we sixteen, sixteen and a half, something like that? Uh, just under sixteen. Just under sixteen. Does that sound right to you, Jonathan? Uh, yeah. Again, we're a little bit a little lower, lower than you, but we're moving in that direction. And so yeah. by five years, we're 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 right at seventeen. Seven back to seventeen million. Okay. All right. Okay. Very good. Let's talk about credit because uh, you all everyone's bringing this up. Uh, so it, obviously this is in the context of the banking crisis, but even before the banking crisis, uh, auto, uh, credit quality was eroding underwriting standards were being tightened and the, the banking crisis just exacerbated all that. How big a deal is this, uh, Jonathan, how big a deal is this, uh, development in terms of, uh, the availability and cost of, uh, an auto loan? Oh, credit, credit is huge. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, when you look at total transactions in the U.S., close to 60% of vehicle sales are financed. 
Uh, within new, it's north of 80% are dependent on financing and then used, it's it's a little over half are dependent on financing. So if if credit's not available or if it's uh, very expensive, it, it it's uh, it's the payment that matters to most consumers. And that's where we've seen even more substantial change than we've seen on the pricing side because it's the combination uh, of the rise in interest rates. And auto has along with prices that we we just talked about. And auto has experienced uh, more of an of an, a sticky increase in interest rates than what we're seeing in other types of rates like mortgage rates. Um, and some of that is because if you look at the lending in auto, uh, it's a serve all uh, kind of world. Uh, every credit uh, tier is represented um, because everyone needs access to transportation and and we've got an incredibly sophisticated and large uh, set of lenders who cater to certain parts of the market and and a, lo a lot of uh, very strong underwriting that knows how to deal with a higher percentage chance of of lower credit tier, tier consumers defaulting and and uh, having to repossess a vehicle uh, but also dealing with the fundamental aspect unlike housing that vehicles are naturally a depreciating asset um, so there, there's quite a sophisticated, uh, kind of credit world that exists and I think is appropriately um, adjusting for risk that they're observing in delinquencies and defaults that were deteriorating uh, last year um, and uh, have were leading to tightening. And one of the variables that has changed the most in the last year in credit is yield spreads. Uh, for a while, especially uh, in 2021, we had uh, by historical standards, the narrowest yield spreads uh, we'd ever seen. So on top of very low interest rates, um, because of it predating the Fed starting to increase, it meant consumers were seeing the lowest rates ever. Yield spread meaning the rate that a consumer would see if they actually got see relative to the yeah. risk-free treasury yield. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And we've now, and especially with the uh, banking crisis in March, we, we observe yield spreads widening quite a bit. Um, and they really reflect the momentum that we were talking about, that new has positive momentum and used has negative momentum. Well, new has the manufacturers intentionally putting incentive money in their captive finance companies or in their strategic banking partners that keep the rates sometimes lower than the, the market rate otherwise would be. But the used market doesn't have that kind of player that's willing to uh, kind of compensate for an increase in in risk. And so we've we saw used rates on average go up by almost 90 basis points in March. Almost a percentage um, point. Yeah, almost a percentage point. Um, so you know that 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 was kind of evidence of people who were thinking that the tightening credit conditions would be equivalent to uh, the Fed having increased 75 basis points instead of a quarter. Right, right. It's interesting that despite the uh, very strong vehicle prices, that you're, we're seeing these credit issues. I mean, because, I mean, I guess use, news vehicle prices have come in a little bit, but they're still very elevated from where they were pre-pandemic, right? And despite that, people are defaulting on their autos? Well, they're not defaulting at historical okay. levels. They're okay. just falling behind 30 and 60 days. I see. Uh, that makes at, sense. At, yeah. So I think it's evidence of stress. I think it's absolutely correlated with inflation. It's more severe with subprime than it is in other uh, credit tiers. 
and the, it's the higher vehicle prices. And as a result, uh, more people than not have more positive equity in their vehicle than they would at this point in their loan. It gives them options and makes the lender more willing to work with them if they do run into payment difficulties. So we haven't seen delinquencies turn into similar level of defaults, but the delinquency level is unprecedented uh, from a rate perspective. Yeah. You you observe that as well, right, Mike, from the Equifax data? And, and, uh, Jonathan, I guess you look at that Equifax data too, don't you? Yeah, right. The yes. Bureau data. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, I think this March is the, if we seasonally adjust it, it's the, the highest level since 2010 for all autos, mm. highest level for auto. So we, we break it out, auto finance and auto bank. The banks are pe people that take deposits. The finance are going to be the like the captives that don't take deposits and the the niche subprime lenders that also don't take deposits, but they lend to uh, lower uh, credit worthy individuals. Uh, so on the auto finance side, it's it's really uh, delinquencies are uh, sky high, the highest they've been since the financial crisis. Uh, one interesting thing that I wanted to point out was the the highest increase from 2019 until today by credit score band are those between 680 and 740. If you're looking just 2019 average delinquency rates, total loans to uh, right now, and so. I think that's just evidence of uh, credit score inflation. Uh, th these people that are in that 680 to 720 range now were people that were uh, 600 to 680 four years ago. And so th as these people ha had their uh, student loans deferred, their mortgages deferred for a little bit, all of the uh, fiscal stimulus that took place over the pandemic, they've been able to shift up the credit score spectrum. And now they may be... Uh, worse borrowers than banks had expected going into making those loans to people that are uh, just uh, just above subprime. Uh, hey, Chris, you watch this data carefully as well. Anything you want to add? I mean, that's a lot of detail, but just, just to be complete, is there anything that uh, you'd mention? Um, I guess, yeah, I, I would uh, second all the observations yeah. here. I, you know, so I've been sounding the alarm on like credit score inflation for a while, so it's mm -hmm. not surprising. I think it's it's consistent. I would say that the defaults may be low still, but in part because we've gotten a, a little bit of a lifeline from the higher vehicle prices. So mm -hmm. if someone's in trouble, they can potentially sell their vehicle and and get out of the loan. But if if indeed things turn, if those prices soften, that's when you'll see you know the defaults really ramping up, losses piling up. So be a little cautious. We might be in this period where things look okay, mm -hmm. but. Yeah, they, get, they get bad pretty quickly if prices yeah. start to decline. And, and thankfully, in the short term, we're in tax refund season. So we oh, saw yes. in March the usual seasonal pattern that delinquencies came down um, and defaults came down. So we've got a couple of months of reprieve simply because of $300 billion flowing through uh, consumer pocketbooks. It is interesting, you guys, though, despite the pretty dark perspective on what's going on with uh, with auto lending, you're still sticking to demand hanging in there, right? And actually improving this the next year compared to this. No, right? I mean, despite all that. Well, I'm characterizing our, our more conservative outlook for sales this year to be driven by the industry is replacing a supply problem with a demand problem. Um, oh, okay, so we're at 14.6, 14.9 this year. It's weak. It's still weak. Well, below you're, the way you frame it is we're still weak. And the reason is not now it's less supply. Well, supply is 
an issue, but it's more now about demand and to the de- yeah. the weighing on demand is the tightening and underwriting because of what's going on in the auto credit market. So, so one way to look at it, uh, you know, the the industry is a serve serve every kind of customer. Uh, so, subprime has a place in both new and the used market. Prior to the pandemic, about fifteen percent of new vehicle loans uh, was consistently subprime, and that is less than they are in the population, roughly 20%, um, which makes sense given the price of new vehicles. Well, last year we fell to 5%. Um, so effectively 10% of the potential market is no longer there. And uh, it can cannot make it work with t- today's rates because the average subprime new vehicle loan rate is about 20%. Right. Okay. Um, uh, just one quick point, and then we're going to play the game. Uh, is that we are, even though sales, vehicle sales are still low by pre-pandemic standards, nobody is seeing a decline in new vehicle sales, which would be completely unprecedented, wouldn't it, if we we had a recession? I mean, I I know these things are simultaneous and, you know, causality is a little difficult to determine, but hard to get to a recession unless you actually see some pretty sizable declines of vehicle sales. No? Well, that's, uh, yeah, it's a great question. And we follow your scenarios very closely. And so in our baseline, the answer is yes, we do not see a decline in vehicle sales. But in our recession scenario, uh, which which we follow very closely uh, to to your uh, main recession scenario, the S7, I believe. Uh, we, Ooh, careful consumer. Yeah. <laughs> We do anticipate there would be a decline um, in in new vehicle sales, uh, close to ten percent. Let me put it this way, though. Okay, prior to every other recession, and I may be exaggerating because I don't know uh, the data as well as you do. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You, we have a what I would call spent up demand. Uh, a lot of incentives. People pulled forward their their purchases because easy credit. You know they. They could they could buy and they bought ahead of their demographic need spent up demand. So when you got into the weak economy, that caused that was a weight on sales and it, and it it added to contributed to the downturn, made it made it worse. Vehicle sales, vehicle production, vehicle employment, everything just craters. This go around, very different situation. We're, we've got pent up demand. We can debate how much, but we're all saying pent up, pent up, not spent up demand. So. Uh, that puts a uh, kind of a floor under things or feels like it puts a floor under things. Yes. And it makes it less likely the vehicle industry is going to contribute to any economic downturn that we might suffer. Therefore, it makes it less likely we're going to have an economic recession. D- does that does that resonate? Yes, I think it's I think you would characterize it as more of a postponement of the recovery than you would a typical uh, downturn. Yeah. Right. OK. Uh, Mike, does that sound right to you? Uh, it's a little tail wagging the dog, but okay. <laughs> it's, uh, think, it's hard to distinguish who's the tail, who's the dog here. It, it, I think the economy is the dog and the okay. vehicle sales are the tail. Okay. Um, okay. All right. Very good. Okay. Let's play the game. Let's play the statistics game. Uh, Jonathan, you're going to play this game. Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Very good. Uh, the game, uh, just to, uh, reiterate, uh, is, um, we all put forward a statistic the rest of the gang tries to figure that out through uh, questions, clues, deductive reasoning. The best statistics are ones that are 
not so easy, we get it immediately, not so hard, we never get it. And if it's apropos to the topic at hand, inflation, autos, vehicles, uh, recent data, that uh, all the better. Okay. Uh, uh, Chris, I'm going to go with you first, uh, just so uh, everyone gets the hang of it. Uh, so what's your statistic? Sure. In honor of Marissa, who usually goes first. So, yeah, she uh, usually goes first. What happened? She's gone. She's went AWOL. Yeah, she, she emailed us. She can't. Uh, she can't, can't join. join today. Okay. My number is related to the topic at hand. Vehicles? Vehicles and inflation. Ooh, okay. 17.4%. I know it. Oh. Oh. Whoa. Should should we, the rest of us know it, Mike? Or is this a no. very, this is in the weed <laughs> kind of thing. I think I know it too. I'm going to, just because I really don't know it, but I. I and want, 15%. <laughs> Oh, and 15%. I don't have that one. <laughs> okay. Could it be, because Mike, I know you know it. Uh, Jonathan, do you have any idea? No, not yet. Can I Can I just throw out a... Just Go for it. Go for yeah. It. Uh, it's uh, vehicle insurance. Uh, that is 15%. That's, yeah, there you go. Jonathan. Now, that wasn't Jonathan, the, uh, that wasn't Jonathan, the wait, wait, number. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, Jonathan, what do you think about what just happened there? <laughs> is that impressive or not? That is impressive. Okay, that's what I'm saying, Mike. Did you hear that? He's impressed with with what's uh, what's seventeen point four percent though. <laughs> Mike, oh, go ahead, Mike. What is it? Uh, CPI for motor vehicle repair. Very good. Very good. Oh, year, year very over year. Good. Yeah. Very year. Good. Yeah. Excellent. Yep. Yeah. Well, there's yeah. no way we would have got. I would have gotten that if you didn't give us the clue up front about inflation and yeah, yeah. And, uh, but that was good. Yeah. Well, uh, explain, explain that. I mean, that I, These I, are huge, I, right? I, I, I just got my auto insurance bill and it was, it was up. It was a shock. 15, 20%. I mean, what, what's going on? Talk about affordability. Yeah, I'm thinking exactly. about giving back one of my cars because that's like crazy. Yeah, it, those two are very related to one another. It's the expense of the parts and the repairs. Uh, and ah. uh, the, the capacity is down uh, in, in the service business as well. So there's strong pricing power there. We we actually have a software platform that uh, many franchise dealers use to run their uh, service department. And what we have consistently seen is that we've yet to see a recovery in the number of people taking their car in, but the average service ticket has been up double digits um, because when they do, they're doing more work. Plus you have the inflation on parts and, and labor uh, leading to in many cases, double-digit uh, increases in revenue related to service. Yeah. How long does this continue? I mean, here too, I mean, should we, I mean, it can't keep going up 15, 20%, can it? Well, you got a cyclical effect of if you're pricing people out of the new vehicle market, their alternative is to hold on to their existing vehicle longer, which makes them more inclined to take care of the vehicle and address needed investments. So I think you've got a long way to run on this uh, for, for that part of the market to be more expensive. Well, I'll, I'll tell you though, I just, it, this, this is just a Zandy anecdote. I, you know, I've got a lot of kids and they all had a car. They have, they've gone to school and I've kind of just parked a couple of them in the driveway or in the garage. And I'm thinking to myself, and it's obviously just convenience when they come home, they've got a, they got their car and they can go do what they want to do. But that seems like a pretty luxurious convenience, doesn't it? In the context of these, of these uh, insurance increase. So I'm thinking I, well, I'm just going to sell one of these cars. If I'm thinking this way, other people got to be thinking this way. No. Okay. Yeah. 
But if we couldn't get you to do that when prices were at their peak. Yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah. But that's Let's actually that, in, in yeah. the government data, we see an expansion in households with multiple vehicles. The, the, that has actually grown when a lot of um, people had projected that we would see a decline in vehicle ownership. The opposite is true. And it's principally multi-vehicle families and households that are responsible mm. for that uptick. Mm, interesting. Okay. Right. That was a great statistic. Yeah. Um, oh, my, why, why I chose it, my fear yeah. is that this uh, increase in repair costs is going to lead to a credit event. Right with the with folks facing a higher expense with a used car, right? Ah. They hit a you know these cars are getting older. They're going to face yeah. some type of repair. Can they afford to actually repair the car, or do they give up and uh, turn the keys back in at that point? So that's interesting. Something, something to watch, right? Particularly at that lower end where you know people are really stretched already. They're trying to get into that used vehicle, and on top of that. <clears throat> they're going to face some very expensive repair. Yes. And in order to get a payment that works for them, they've had to consider a, an older vehicle, three to four years yep. older than they would have previously. Uh, and they've pushed terms to the longest that have ever existed in the, in the used vehicle side. Yeah, that's very interesting. So you, you, Chris, you think there's some real credit issues on for auto loan, loans coming up here, not only because prices are going to come, if prices are coming in, but as you point out, these... Yeah. these very high repair costs. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Okay. Jonathan, what's your statistic? <clears throat> All right. This is very timely. Um, 4.6%. Is it related to the vehicle industry? To surprise you all and throw you off? No. Uh, I mean, it I, is indirectly, but. Yeah. Well, everything is indirectly. Yeah. Uh, for Is it in the CPI report? No. Did it okay. come out this week? Yes. Okay. Oh, it's a statistic, a government statistic that came out this week? Not government. Uh, okay. Oh, boy. All right. All right. Yeah. So a trade group, um, it's not any, anything related to small business, is it? No. No. Um, what else uh, is oh, it? Oh, really uh, today. Uh, wasn't that the inflation expectations? Bingo. University Cal of Michigan. Oh, really? That's the one-year inflation expected, median yeah. expected inflation jumped a full percentage point. That's weird. In, in the April Michigan preliminary. I don't believe that. Do you believe I, that? I was surprised it by weird. it too, but that's a substantial I don't believe change. That. that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I know I mean, gas prices up a little bit, but not, not yeah. a lot. And gas prices are rising and there's been a lot of media coverage of the OPEC um, kind of implications. So maybe... Mm. I don't know. Back to your point about data. What was that? What is that comment you made about data? Yeah. I don't yeah. I don't know. That feels weird. What do you, Chris, does that feel weird to you? I don't know. A point feels like a lot. Well, I, I could see like... that it ticked up. Certainly. Yeah, I could see it tick up with the gasoline price. But it, that's pretty aggressive. Yeah. Interesting, though. That's a good one. That's a really good one. Scary one. Hopefully it's wrong. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, Mike, you want to go? Sure. Uh, minus 8.9%. Is it in the CPI numbers? Yes. So it is a year-over-year -year price decline for some yes. product or good or service? Correct. Got it. Is it auto-related? Yes. Oh, gosh. Oh, is it a and gas or energy? Not energy. Uh. 
okay, so we we did repair, we did insurance, we did the actual prices. Uh, what's left? Uh, uh, oh, um, uh, rentals, car rentals. Yep. Oh, ding, ding, car ding. rentals, <laughs> car rentals. Yeah, that's deductive reasoning right there. Yeah, no. car rentals. <laughs> They're down eight point nine percent year over year. Yes. So okay, now that's. They're how do you explain though, right? that? They go up, yeah, they go you... down, they go all around, right? So, I'm yeah. surprised at that. You know what? Why, Mike? Do you know? Well, the the lower costs for the vehicles themselves, uh, lower demand. Everyone was coming out of the uh, pandemic, and they started traveling more, and then that's come down a bit. Mm. So uh, the supply side, it's easier supply and a little bit less demand. So they're uh, getting positives on both sides, lower prices. Oh, interesting. Well, do you think that continues here? Uh. Depends on how used vehicle prices go. If our forecast yep. uh, sticks to script and new vehicle prices come down and used vehicle prices come down, then you could see more weakness in the uh, rental space too. Yeah, interesting. Are fleet sales still up? They're they're growing substantially. That's that's yeah. where the true pent up demand is coming through loud and clear. Oh. So those rental car companies are finally being able to replace. It actually improves their performance because the cost of maintenance when you're principally using older and previously driven used vehicles uh, was, was much worse for them. Um, so it, it could be that, yes, you have sustainable declines in, in rental and it's still positive for the rental car companies. Well, I'm, I'm going to skip my number just because uh, we're running out of time and I do want to get to what really you're disappointed. Oh, come on. Okay. All right. Okay. You asked for it. Why, it's not a good one. It's a. It, it's a good one. It just takes us. A, it takes us a little off the script, but uh, yeah, I'll do it. Go ahead. Are you All guys right. are ready? I'll do it. All right. You know, it goes to my inherent optimism. You know, glass half full. You know, inflation coming in. Those are all good uh, clues. I'm going to give you uh, three numbers. Uh, they're all the same, related to the same thing. Point three. 3.8, 5.6. This, this is a little hard. So CPI. CPI related. It It is a, um, well, I don't know. I don't, I'll, I'll let you ask another question or two before I give you another clue. It's on the service side of the economy. It It's related oh, to. Oh, was it the super core? Super core. Okay. So what's the point three? Well, that wasn't that month to month. No, month no. to month, month to month. Supercore inflation. Supercore is uh, services, uh, excluding uh, uh, housing. So it's the the uh, part of the CPI that uh, the Federal Reserve is most focused on, uh, at least ostensibly. And it's the, it's been the most persistent, sticky um, uh, source of inflation. So point three is month to month. What's what's uh, What's so the, the three the point last eight? Was the year year over year? Right? Last one is the year over year. Five point six is year over year. So what's the? Is that some type of moving average? Three month? Uh... Six month. Six, six month. month. Okay. Which Pretty I good. you know I, six Pretty month good. is generally what I consider to be near term trend. <laughs> near term trend. Okay. Point three, three point six. Excuse me. The uh, three point eight and five point six. That's a super core for the month, six month, and in one year. And I bring that up because it it is definitively coming down. Uh, you know, if, uh, the 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 sixth month, which I again is I think kind of underlying trend uh, of three point eight, 
you know, that's within spitting distance of where it was pre-pandemic. You know, pre-pandemic, it was around three. So we're, it's coming in here pretty quickly. Uh, and, you know, I take a lot of solace in that. So going back to the beginning of the of the conversation around the inflation, it's three phases. Phase one is is what we were talking about related to the pandemic, supply chains and vehicle prices are kind of, you know, front and center for that phase one. Phase two is the cost of housing services. Talked about that. Phase three is core services and all three phases of the slowdown in inflation are now, you know, working together and feels like inflation is coming in, you know, reasonably gracefully. So reason to be optimistic. <clears throat> okay. Is that enough to pause or? <clears throat> in, in my view, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't get it, right? You've got inflation coming in. I just articulated the logic for that. Job growth is slowing. Wage growth is rolled over. It's moderating very quickly. Uh, and you have the banking crisis in that situation and how that's unfolding. Why in the world wouldn't you just pause at this point and take a look around? Uh, you know, I, I, I not I'm not forecasting that's what they'll do. It feels like they they want to raise rates one more quarter point, but why? Right. You know, why yeah. do that? I, I don't. I, I you know I don't I don't understand it. Anyway, uh, let's end the conversation. Um, I'm going to be respectful of time uh, with a little bit of a longer term look. Uh, in this big decision, seemingly big decision by the administration and the EPA to uh, really uh, tighten down on emission standards in, in an effort to significantly increase uh, electric vehicle uh, uh, vehicles here uh, going forward. I, I can't remember what the uh, forecast is, but they're saying 10 years from now, what EV is going to be what proportion of the, of uh, sales? 67% of, of light vehicles and half of uh, uh, the some of the commercial vehicles. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think, Jonathan? Is this um, what do you think of this move? It it uh, it wasn't a surprise. Uh, it was it was widely understood that something like this would be coming. Uh, it clearly is, I think, a, a, aggressive. Um, it is not necessarily substantially out of the range of what's possible but we look at a lot of production forecasts that i would i would say are are more supply driven and if if the production capacity and what manufacturers have planned doesn't seem capable of lining up with that number then it, it it makes it less likely because we've yet to get to the point with electric vehicles where consumer adoption is the issue um we're selling every one because there's willing takers when you're selling a million or less but when we have to sell 6 million, 12 million, uh, that's an entirely different proposition that requires middle America to purchase. And the reality is if we named affordability as the top issue, uh, electric vehicles are much more expensive and still are uh, than the the average uh, vehicle that, that we're selling. And so I think we've got a lot of things that are gonna have to go right, both on the su supply chain and production side and on the infrastructure charging network, uh, for further consumer subsidies, there's going to have to be real consumer adoption uh, for, for this to take place. I suppose it's one of those things, well, even if you don't get two thirds, but it, it got a half, it's still victory, isn't it? I mean, that's still, and maybe the two thirds comes in 15 years, you know, or something like that. Yeah, it's still and, and I I definitely think on the light vehicles, half in 10 years is entirely possible now based okay. on what's okay. already planned and uh, in the pipeline, but vehicles take on average about five years for a new model to be planned and introduced. And um, it, it really, 
to try to go from 50 to 67% uh, in the same time frame really means a lot of action has to take place in the next couple of years for that to even uh, come to fruition. Mm-hmm. Mike, what do you think about this move? I agree with the 50% number. Uh, the, the move, you're basically making it impossible for uh, companies to reach these new standards without bringing in electric vehicles. So that's why they did it this way instead of putting right. in the those mandates. It's a lot uh, more politically palatable to say, oh, these are these new mandates, but these mandates aren't possible with current technology. So they're basically putting a mandate in for electric vehicle um, adoption, just being a little uh, backdoor with it. Um, so it, it, we do need to get there. This is a, a good way to get it through without all the backlash. Uh, in terms of the affordability, our forecast looks for price parity out into 2025. So I don't think that mm. uh, even this is sticker price, not even lifetime cost, sticker price Uh, If we are able to return to pre-pandemic battery uh, cost depreciation or or decrease in costs because of increases in scale and technology, if we get back to those uh, pre-pandemic trends, we can get at price parity in the next few years. And once we can get at price parity at sticker, I think 50% is easy um, in terms of demand. The other 50% in terms of the infrastructure, I know, I'm thinking... In my own house, I don't want to be driving down to Florida and stop for yeah. an hour and a half with three kids in the back of the car to charge a vehicle. I want a car where I can fill up in 10 minutes and have you uh, actually get done it back that drive, Mike? Have you actually oh, done that? Once Syracuse? a year. Yep. Yeah, that how that's like that'd be like 20 out 22 hours or something. Oh, like I can depends talking state line or are you going all the way to Vero? Oh, good point. Good point. Yeah, <laughs> good point. That's another four hours, five hours. Yeah. 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 Okay, so that's interesting because uh, you you do a lot of work forecasting prices for electric vehicles, and you're saying by 2025, you said that EV that, prices are going to be on par with the uh, uh, IC prices. That's what our projection was uh, before the pandemic. There's been a lot of supply chain issues in terms uh-huh. of lithium and uh, graphite, cobalt, all the things that go into the batteries that uh, may have thrown that off. But uh, that was our uh, prediction before the pandemic. Is that with uh, government subsidies? or? Yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah. Without government subsidies. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. interesting. Yeah. I just need to hold on for two more years. You're saying. Okay. All right. I can do it. Yeah. Yeah. Does that sound right to you, Jonathan, about the uh, price parity? I, I agree. We will get to a point at some point. I think there's a lot of complications, though, with even some of the moves that we have uh, with incentives and the like that create more challenges with China that dominates and controls a lot of the um, you know, bat- battery magnets and, and critical um, inputs on the mineral side that still you can't get to the number of volumes with today's sources and, and inputs. Uh, there's a lot of mm. uh, moves that are going to have to be done um, that we can't account for. And I would say a similar issue is true. If you think about the demand side, for the cost of electricity, the grid capability to handle the volume load, there's a lot of movement that has to be made on that side too. Now, I live in Georgia where we have plenty of capacity and it's not gonna be an issue, uh, but there, there are already states that are at their limit uh, on what they can deliver in the, in the near term without this adding uh, to it mm-hmm. as well. So lots of things are gonna have to move in concert in the right direction. Uh, to make that 50% possible. Um, and, I, and, and so I think it's going to be an interesting next 10 years. And the automakers, are they 
on board with this or are they resistant to it how, how do they view all this the good thing bad thing or they're just this is the reality of the thing and they're, they're going to execute i i think it's more the latter um and all of them have stated goals and objectives and some are more aggressive than others um everybody sees this as the inevitable direction of of where the technology and and the industry is going i think what they want to do and it's part of what Mike was alluding to, the way the rules were written. They want flexibility uh, so that they can have slightly different strategies um, in, in terms of how it's delivered. And I think technically the rule is written that way, that if you come up with a, flu, a fuel cell alternative, uh, you're delivering the same, uh, you know, the results. So I, I think I, I don't think you're going to have the manufacturers uh, largely uh, contending with this. Yeah, and I guess what once you go down this path, it's going to be more difficult for future administrations, even if they were opposed to this, to to roll it back, right? Because so much investment will have been made, we've, so many sunk costs have been incurred that rolling it back would be pretty disruptive. Is that is that fair to say? Because you would think that politically, this is kind of a hot potato a bit, and some future yeah, administration might. I, I think I the rollback risk it. is probably just the next election. And once you get just the next that, election, you're absolutely right. Yeah. But by the way, when you look at electric vehicle adoption, there's two Americas. We have counties with electric vehicles yeah. and, and we have far more counties with no electric vehicles. Yeah, good point. Um, so there is quite a divide. Yeah. I guess it's urban rural too, to some degree, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For good. For sure. Okay. I am. I think we're uh, at time. Uh, just a quick open-ended question. Anything big on the vehicle radar screen I missed? Entirely possible. Or I, I, we covered it pretty well. We covered it pretty well. You you want to go get lunch. I can feel it. Yeah. yeah. We, hit the, we hit all the right topics. We hit all the right topics. Okay, great. Well, very good. Jonathan, it was a, always a pleasure uh, having you on. Uh, you know, I, I do generally take guests down in dirty into the data but I never take them into the complete bowels of the data. And you did that. You went all the way into the bowels of the data. I think you actually have a spreadsheet where you can actually calculate, you know, what the BLS is going to say on these things, but uh, we, that's very impressive. Try. Yeah. Very impressive. And you, you've got a kindred spirit and Brisson over here, you know, uh, Brisson, Brisson will go down, down into the bowels as well with you. Uh, Chris, not so much. He's, he's more of a 5,000 foot kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it was a pleasure. I want to thank everybody for, uh, uh, listening in. Uh, I, I do want to remind you if you've got any questions for us, uh, fire away. We're going to take some listener questions in the next podcast or two, and um, we'll, we'll talk to you next week. Take care now. Bye-bye. <laughs>